and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Dr. Yuso H. Nieminen. Dr. Nieminen is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Education at the University of Hong Kong and a Banting Fellow at Ontario Tech University in Canada. He is also an adjunct professor at the University of Eastern Finland and an honorary fellow at the Center for Research in Assessment and Digital Learning at Deakin University in Australia. Dr. Nieminen's research concerns educational assessment from social, cultural, and political points of view. He is particularly interested in the student perspective in the matters of assessment. Dr. Nieminen has also studied assessment from the viewpoints of inclusion, equity, and diversity. So welcome, uh, you. So we're going to begin the conversation um, by having you share a personal st- story that's related to disability. I think that would be a good beginning to our conversation today. Yeah, I actually have a story from uh, this morning. So earlier today, I was giving a workshop for uh, another university in Hong Kong, that, and this um, university or the this teaching and learning unit of this university approached me that they would be interested in developing their inclusive assessment practices. And I was uh, not just personally flattered, but also like quite uh, interested. There is a university in Hong Kong interested in these issues because you can't really say that disability rights would be the priority number one in this city. Uh, anyway, I gave this workshop and it was absolutely wonderful. And participants were really engaging and I rarely get that kind of a warm and uh, just welcoming uh, atmosphere uh, in these situations. Often when you train teachers about inclusion, inclusive assessment, the atmosphere tends to be a bit tense. Uh, But anyway, the story is that uh, after after this talk, one of the participants contacted me and this participant happened to be uh, staff member who was had also been a student at this university and they shared that they had never before thought about the fact that something might be wrong about assessment design that assessment itself might need to somehow change or be more inclusive or more accessible but for their whole life they had thought that it's their fault and they are the one who needs to be fighting for accommodations but assessment in itself can never change and that was a good reminder for me, I've been working with this topics for quite some time, that yeah, in, in fact, that is quite often the prevalent idea that we have in, in, in practice, that assessment just is, it remains as this, and then we add layers on top of it. And, and this uh, rather emotional context that I got, it really made me remind her that, about the power of assessment <laughs> that we have for disabled folks out there. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. and. So, as I understand, this was um, a conversation you had with 
this university and was among like you mentioned staff and faculty member there there is that correct exactly yeah okay and that that was um you know something that you uh one of this you mentioned one of the staff members came up to you and, and had this uh conversation about assessment oh that's that's very fascinating thank you for sharing that story really interesting you know i'm i'm uh getting an image in my mind that's not in the script at all but i think it's 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 a good segue into the next set, set of questions that i want to ask you and and i'm thinking of um something religious uh in the sense that um there is a story in the bible that that the the jewish and christian folks um, having common as as their scriptural source, um, it's it's the story of um, the golden calf. Um, apparently, people got very impatient. They were waiting for Moses to come down with the tables of the law, and and he would delay too much, and people would say to the person in charge uh, in the absence of Moses, it was Aaron, um, to build a golden calf for them to worship instead of God. So um, sometimes I feel that we get into this idolatry of, uh, it's almost like we're having an, an idolatrous relationship with assessment. Uh, and this is not something I'm making up. Uh, San Simon, a sociologist, in the 19th century said that science, in this case, math or assessment would become the new religion once um, uh, we, we did away with the irrational modes of religion. So it was, it was gonna become a rationalistic, scientific religion. And the new priests, he said, would be scientists um assessment experts uh researchers that sort of thing and and i mean to me it, it all just talks about new spheres of power that sometimes we we are trying to transgress the old system and we want to create something new uh in the process we we're just installing a new priesthood a new um system of of power that controls controls everything. Do, do you want to react to that? Because I, I know you you have um, a lot of interesting experiences with with power, and your own research has dealt with a lot of these these discursive constructions and and how um, assessment becomes it, its own golden calf, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That. Uh... I really like this idea of thinking about assessment from a, from a religious perspective. It makes me think about the concept of uh, holy or sacred and how there might be <laughs> once in a while some elements about assessment, particularly in mathematics, that are sacred in a sense that they should not be touched upon, they should not be discussed, or we having a conversation about whether something are sacred or holy needs to be replaced or changed in a way that's that's a very bold 
<laughs> move. You don't just start these conversations just like that. Hey, by the way. Uh, and I think that if lens to assessment might uh, reveal something about it. Uh, there's a lot about that that I can understand. When I was uh, working in school before I started my uh, academic career, I was uh, uh, trained as a math teacher. There was a big part of me uh, that was not interested in assessment at all because, of course, we know how mathematics needs to be assessed. We know how it works. We have exams, and 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 that's it. And this is really the um, attitude that I've faced, that, that the ways in which we assess mathematics, it, it's something are uh, just solid and un, un, untouchable and in a way apolitical and just so rational that we can't actually even start a conversation about it. So I really like this um, replacement or tension or intertwinement between something religious and something rational. And I wonder how much these ideas intertwine in our current art discourses about assessment. It makes me, you mentioned a uh, sociologist whose, whose name I didn't know. Let me name drop, name drop another one. Makes me think about uh, Patricia Proudfoot, a sociologist of educational assessment who was, uh, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s talking about um, modernist discourse, which by which she referred to how classroom assessment, so assessment that is conducted by teachers, uh, how that assessment is doing its best to have a kind of a rationalist vocabulary and rationalist practices that would somehow imitate scientific measurements and how that modernist discourse um, is kind of upholding a certain understanding of assessment as something untouchable because when we understand it to be objective and uh, an act of measurement, what is there to discuss about? That's that's true and <laughs> sacred in a way. And it's interesting because it's it's also a recognition that teachers don't have power. And so for them to really become powerful, they have to get a new kind of dressing and they get dressed as scientists by becoming assessment experts and using the right language, the, the proper pronouncements, uh, almost like going through the rituals of becoming assessment experts without being truly scientists or truly researchers or that that's sort of an interesting recognition right you you're almost bowing to assessment because you know that as a teacher you really don't have power and the real power resides there with with the scientific assessment language and that sort of thing that don't you think well, it's interesting you say that because I would say that in my current context of Hong Kong, that's very much the case. The system, the educational system really relies on testing and teachers, whatever they do in their classrooms has to be somehow related to the testing mechanisms. This is the very traditional washback effect or backwash effect with both terms I used weirdly uh, of high stakes testing on classroom assessment practice. But then when I think about Finland, uh, where I'm from, by the way. <laughs> um, so in Finland, teachers in comprehensive education and in higher education, they have all the power and all the autonomy they could ever have. So in Finland, co uh, comprehensive education uh, doesn't have national testing at all. Uh, teachers have all the autonomy to do whatever they want to do in assessment. Uh, same in higher education. There's, in mathematics, there's no 
standardization of assessment. Every teacher can do exactly what they want to. If you as an individual teacher want to change how you assess, you can do that tomorrow, and no one's going to force you to do anything. And even then, we know that in Finland, both in schools and in universities or in higher education institutions, mathematics is assessed through exams, and that's it. <laughs> and mm. I, I did my PhD in um, uh, in this idea of trying to change assessment in the university context, and I was stu- studying the power relations um, attached or within, and it was interesting. I'm, I'm I'm not blaming the teachers here, but there seemed to be something much greater than the teachers because they had, even though they had this autonomy, when we changed assessment in one single mathematics course in the context of Finland, where Trades have absolutely no value. It really doesn't matter if you get a get the, get the highest score or the lowest score. Really, the employees employees are not going to care about that. The university doesn't care about that. So it's a really low stakes assessment culture. We changed assessment in one single course in this context, and even that was considered to be something extremely radical by uh, other teachers, by students, uh, faculty members. And I know that they are. Some of them are still talking about this assessment experiment that we did. And this one course, there's a part of me that thinks, who cares? It was just one course. Whatever we did doesn't really influence anyone's lives too much. But it really, we were poking that uh, sacred thing. They have autonomy, but at the same time, they're worshipping assessment. I mean, in their own sense of autonomy, they're they're still attaching too much value to assessment. That, that That's sort of the situation there. Uh yeah, or certain types of assessment. I mean, we're talking about examinations here, mm-hmm. right? Examinations, um, the traditional types. Uh, Paolo, you're gonna say something? Yeah, I found it very fascinating when you started comparing the Hong Kong context to the Finland context, and then I, Alexis and I are, are here in the United States context, and and how different those three are, and what I hear you saying, there there's still like an underlying kind of a, a very strong force of assessment that's even though in the Finland context as as we here in the United States for a long time we people were revering the Finland education system as as you mentioned teacher autonomy teacher uh professionalism that is kind of very different than even the US uh where assessments are are a big constraint so I was really interested to when you talked about like when you did this one assessment change in in a very what, what was different about that assessment? I mean, what, it, because it it sounds like it caused quite a bit of stir uh, in that Finnish context, and so just I wanted you to share a little bit more about what you did uh, in that assessment that 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 had this kind of reaction in in this Finnish context. Yeah. yeah so. Um... What we did was a kind of an early example of uncreating, which is the cool new term that Americans particularly like to use, or North Americans uh, at the moment, which basically means trying to get rid of grades, which might be a bit tricky in context where you absolutely do need to provide grades for your students. So what we did was we knew that we had a large student body of undergraduate mathematics students in this context of large courses. So we uh, in this uh, one course that I was studying, we had around 400 students, so a big course. And we knew that this student body is extremely interested in grades, even though, again, they do not really matter that much in higher education. But it's a 
in Finland. And we wanted to somehow shake up this idea that the students would be studying for the exams and studying for their trades, which at the time we thought was something very important. And we basically, we asked the students to decide their own trades after this course. Um, of course, this was a bit more complex than that. Uh, we didn't simply just do that. We trained them to self-assess their own mathematical abilities. We provided them a lot of feedback. We asked them to engage with that feedback. We provided them also a lot of feedback on their self-assessments. And in this way, try to support their autonomy as learners. And the results were uh, in many uh, ways of measurements, both uh, statistical and, and qualitative, wonderful. Many of the students, they really realized that now when they had to uh, really be in control of, of their own uh, grading system, they, at the same time, they realized how ridiculous the actual system is. Nowadays, when I think back about what we did, we were always ridiculing trading and grades in a way and trying to make students understand that this doesn't actually matter that much. But even though it quite literally does not matter if any student in that one single course would have gotten by using the yeah, global scale if <laughs> failed to create or A plus, it really wouldn't have mattered anyway. So even in that context, that was considered to be something very, very radical. But, but I, I think um, some students were still kind of longing for the grading, the old grading system. Is Did, did you experience some of that? Absolutely. Yes. And what we found was that some students had this almost like an extreme form of lacking agency. Some students reported that they were not able to study. They were not able to take that control, if you will, of of their own learning process. And interestingly, even though, as I mentioned, the course had hundreds of participants and only one teacher, of course, a lot of uh, student assistants, student tutors, many other staff members, but still only one uh, lead teacher. Some students even reported that they have, like, how could they know their own mathematical abilities, even with a lot of materials, rubrics, support, feedback. It is the teacher who knows my real abilities. And we thought, well, that's quite literally untrue because there are hundreds of students and teacher doesn't know anything about any individual student. So yeah, they're very interesting. You could really see how whatever we did was not only about this one course. It was about using one specific example in one specific time to reveal something about a much wider culture of mathematics education. This is irreverent, but it's it's probably in the coffee I drink this morning. Uh, it feels like we're we're uh, many students in this lack of agency. They are great junkies. They really need, if if you take off the drug of grading, they they feel that that something big is missing and they go crazy. Right? You have this dependence that that really creates a culture of of um yeah lack of agency we talk about critical thinking and all these different things at the higher education level but grading creates uh the, the dependency that prevents that autonomous development from from occurring don't you think uh, i'm trying to be a bit careful here don't want to blame someone or something if it's not completely necessary um I think students are great junkies and teachers as well, <laughs> because grades they they're the currency of education. They're the money that we use, and they actually have real value in many contexts. My example previously coming from Finnish higher education, where the grades do not actually matter. That's a bit of an outlier globally, 
for example, here in Hong Kong, the grades, they absolutely do matter. And yes, your employer is definitely interested in your GPA uh, grade point average. In that sense, to me, what you said is almost close to saying that someone is a money chunky, like, because with money, you can get to many different places in on this planet. Um, and it's the same with grades. They have some very real concrete power that's not abstract, but really takes you to places. So of course we are great chunkies, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's because of the crates. The crates are just numbers. They don't have hmm. a lot of agency. I love that the fact you use currency because it, it makes me think of, uh, I'm originally from Venezuela and Venezuela has currency crisis that's very weird. And I think it's, it's deliberately provoked by the government. They have a legal currency called the Bolivar, which has been there forever. If, if you pay people with Bolivars, they, they don't want that money. They, they basically throw that currency away. They, they want dollars. And so even if you go to, to buy a hot dog in the street, you have to pay that with dollars. The, the vendors in the market, everybody wants dollars and they only use dollars, even though the legal currency is the believer, which, which speaks of issues of empire and power. I mean, going back to having currencies and currencies, you see what I mean? It's, you have currencies that by their very nature become the only one that really controls monetary value and instead of saying well this is this is still money and you can translate it into so many believers to get a dollar uh, people just just do away with their the real currency the one that's supposed to be legal legally binding in that country and they would they would prefer to go with a dollar because it it's, it allows them to have a, a more global sense of currency and and getting them connected with the empire, with the the real relations of power, right? Yeah, and of course, the difference with crates is that they're not really very um, objective from a measurement point of view. I mean, no matter how objective you are as a teacher, how fair you are as a teacher, trading is still, it's, it's always a piece of crafting. It's never really comparable with those actual systems of measurement that we have, like standardized testing. It's... Grading is very rarely based on actual psychometric uh, premises, for example. So in a way, we have teachers who are not psychometricians, or they, <laughs> that, that would be a, a bit of an, uh, a lower case, uh, that somehow control and have power over this currency. So it's, it's certainly an interesting situation from the viewpoint of power. Right. That's essentially what where I wanted to go when we started this portion of the conversation is the issue of power, because a lot of the discussion in, in trying to to deal with assessment issues it surrounds the, the notion of power. Uh, and so I, I was wondering if, if there is a way to bring the conversation into a different um, approach, or at least to rethink the idea of power. I thought of um, Stephen Luke's definition of power. He he's a political scientist, a political philosopher. I like the second edition, which came out in two thousand four, because it has some other uh, new essays. the The book is called Power: A Radical View, and and he has a definition of power that is to me very interesting because he defines power in terms of the ability to keep certain things out of the agenda so that they don't really become visible or 
end up being discussed by anybody. Do you think that there are some things in the world of assessment that are kept out of the agenda, even though they may be relevant for the sake of assessment? Because you, you mentioned a while ago, when I said assessment, you said, well, we're really talking about examinations, which is only one kind of assessment. And we, we tend to be narrow-minded uh, when it comes to thinking of assessment. So part of the issue is that there are some things that appear to be swept away from the agenda, from the discussion of things that, that could be part of assessment, but they are not high in the agenda. Do, what, what's your reaction to that idea? Mm, my reaction is that, as I noted uh, previously earlier, we really conceptualize assessment both at the classroom level, but also in, um, in its high stakes forms as a practice of measurement. That's that's really the global trend that uh, is not a very new trend. This idea of measurement is really the backbone of how we talk and think about assessment. And that means that certain ideas that do not meet this psychometric understanding of what assessment is and why assessment is conducted, they might be uh, left in the margins. I have a very good example of uh, coming from Finland again. We are currently undergoing a, an assessment reform in Finland in comprehensive education, so in uh, primary and lower secondary education. So far, as I mentioned earlier, we, we have never had national tests. Oh, sorry, we, we don't have national tests uh, in Finland. Uh, we don't do not have standardized tests in a similar way as, as countries around the world do. At the moment, teachers uh, provide students with the final grades when they leave lower secondary education and when they apply for high schools or vocational education. So teachers have a lot of power there. And it's been a rather long ongoing political discussion about whether that's right or wrong, whether those grades are comparable and they're just provided by teachers. Now, of course, all of this happens in a context where schools are very equal, that doesn't have a kind of a top school system, this kind of a system that definitely not working in Hong Kong. So, uh, we're currently undergoing a reform where teachers are provided with uh, rubrics that they are supposed to use when they provide those final grades. And the purpose of this reform is to make the final grades after lower second, secondary education more comparable so that they would have better psychometric value, so to say, than students applied for further education. This is a very good example of how political conversation from all spe uh, spectrums of, of <laughs> politics from the left up to the, uh, to the right, everyone's only talking about assessment as a process of measurement. Fairness of assessment is only understood as, um, as a matter of measurement and whether this measurement process is valid, reliable, comparable. And this is only one way of talking about assessment, but that is very much the dominant one. And any other, other forms of, uh, any other discourses related to assessment, such as uh, what I'm doing in my work related to inclusion, uh, belonging, equity, that, that doesn't really fit that overall psychometric understanding. Or if it, if it is seen to fit this ideal of measurement, it's only seen from that perspective. Every, very often when I talk about inclusion of uh, disabled people in assessment, people understand that in a way that, oh, you mean the rights of disabled people to participate in objective testing. Uh, so it's very hard to widen this discourse. 
Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with Among Your Network, and leave us a comment and positive rating. Your support means so much. Yeah, this, this has been so wonderful. Uh, you have touched upon so many important aspects. Uh, and, and just to narrow down to maybe one of the ideas uh, is that going back to what you were saying about the Finnish context and in higher education, there's like the grading is is not even anything that is, is matters. I think in the, like in the U S in the context that I am most familiar with is that I work with elementary teachers for the most part. And, and so again, they are in the context of a higher education where grade, as we talked about has currency in elementary schools here in the U S grading is, is kind of like what you said is in, in the Finnish context, right? It doesn't matter what grades you get. There's there's a lot more caring involved uh, in elementary school, sense of belonging, inclusiveness, or at least in, in most cases, that's the situation. I'm thinking in the context of, of a prospective teacher who is in that situation, who's who's sort of being pulled, I feel like, in many directions. It's like, okay, I'm a... I mean, higher education, grades really matter, right? This is, I need an A in this class. And and, and here in the U.S., there's an issue of grade inflation, right? Everybody gets an A, and, and what does that mean now? So, I mean, so there's a lot of things going on with this group of, of, of folks, particular, very very specific group of folks. And, and so I'm wondering uh, about that, because I know you also work with uh, prospective teachers there in Hong Kong. Is that right? Uh, I conduct research with prospective teachers, but I'm actually not teaching prospective teachers. Anybody in the Hong Kong school system, I don't speak the language, from, I don't understand the culture, so I'm actually keeping myself separate from that system a bit. Yeah, so so I'm wondering, in, in, in the context of uh, higher education in Hong Kong and in your own research and your own background in the Finnish context, like, what are some of the things that you are doing uh, in, in terms of pushing back against, I, I know, it, from what I hear, the Hong Kong context is it's very rigid in that way, right? Like if you are trying to do anything that pushes back on assessments, uh, and we talked about ungrading it as part of the movement that's going around a lot here in the U.S. And I have colleagues and I, even myself who who have have kind of gone on in that direction. I'm wondering about you, like you as a as a higher education faculty member who's working in that institution, what are some of the things that you're doing to kind of challenge these assessment systems, even in, in very rigid places that you're in? Oh, many things. First of all, I'm always discussing assessment with my students, always. That my, my students, when they leave my courses, they have had <laughs> a trillion dialogues about assessment and grades with me. And that's not something that you can often see happening in the context of mathematics, for example. It's more common that assessment criteria are introduced in the first lecture and, and so forth, but this ongoing dialogue 
about assessment. I think that already has a lot of power, even if nothing even changes. At least we're talking about it. And I think or that already is one way of um, shedding light on the complexity of these matters. It's very easy to slip into solutionism and find some easy targets. I can see some of it happening now with this uncrating movement, trying to somehow tackle crates, which uh, sometimes is is a movement that I very much support. And sometimes it seems to be a bit uh, simplistic. What, what exactly are we tackling? It's again, the crates are just numbers. Are you? And if you're saying that you're somehow tackling the system, what exactly do you mean by that? What, um, what is this <laughs> magical system? All right. So dialogue is certainly the first point that comes to mind. Another one is, I mean, I'm a bit adventurous with my um <laughs> with my own assessment methods. Uh, before I, I was teaching in Hong Kong, I, I was teaching in Finland, and I have to say that the student population that I have in my classroom is so <laughs> extremely different. Uh, even um, without using any assessment research specific vocabulary, like just uh, basically my students in Hong Kong, they're very much interested in their grades. They're very, uh, they're, what was the term we use? Great chunkies. Again, because they need to be, they need those grades. A situation where a student would learn a lot, but get a low grade is really not acceptable because that influences your future life. If that situation would have happened to me when I was a university student <laughs> and when it happened quite a, few, quite a few times, I couldn't care less. I thought, oh, but at least I learned whatever I needed to learn. So quite often I do provide my students uh, some real agency over their assessment. Many times I co-construct the assessment criteria together with my students. That's in fact something that I do in most of my courses. So the students always have a say in the creating criteria and they always have a say in how the, that criteria is being uh, put in practice. I also often uh, co-create uh, some of the assessment uh, assessment materials, maybe tests, self self assessment forms, peer assessment tasks, often are discussed together with my students. And I have started to increasingly use this uh, practice of after training my students on how assessment criteria work, why they are whatever they are, uh, learning outcomes of course, uh, assessment criteria, how they relate to program learning outcomes and program criteria so forth. when i've trained my students basically on how assessment works how criteria work uh, how assessment practices work i increasingly provide them agency over their traits for example now i'm teaching two courses where i'm using quite a substantial time to train students on the matters of assessment and grading and then i simply just let them choose their traits these are master students um, so they're not uh, very young university students anymore this is something that i that i've started to do i've noticed that uh in Hong Kong, the students also, they have a very different kind of a history with assessment. In fact, I, I had a privilege to teach one course about assessment literacy, teacher assessment literacy in the previous semester. And I could have all these dialogues with my students and all of them were Chinese, the, uh, from mainland China or from Hong Kong. And the stories that these students had about assessment, they were brutal. <laughs> and often when I talk, to, talk with teachers about assessment, I ask them to share some of their own assessment memories. When I did that with this group of students, like that, some people were almost crying. Like it was a very emotional matter. And I remember one of the students used this saying that when they finally graduate from the final uh, piece of education that they ever take part in, they are free from assessments. Finally, they can experience freedom from assessment. And this really, I've, I've been thinking about that ever since. This is the context where I currently work. That's why I've uh, started to become a bit of an assessment rebel. 
luckily I have the mandate of being an assistant researcher. So if someone comes to complain, I can cite my own work. <laughs> I think, yeah, there are some really great ideas about folks who are engaging in the podcast to to hear about and to learn about some of the moves that you're making again in the context where assessments is 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 seen as as, as something that uh, is very rigid and and I, I love the ideas of having dialogue with the students about co-constructing about doing self-assessments about thinking about more about student agency again as, as I think about the context of the U.S., I mean, these are things that I, I think that certain segments of the faculty here are doing. I, I, I don't think it's still the norm by any means, but I, I feel like that those are some great ideas for people to kind of keep thinking about. Besides what you said, well, it's just ungrading. Well, it, yeah, it is ungrading, and it's a lot of these other things that go along with that, and, that, and that's a very complex process. So... Uh, just a quick follow-up question. How, how do you feel that's, I mean, you kind of shared a little bit about the Hong Kong context. So how do you feel, you know, the moves that you're making, the, the shifts, the conversations, all the things you're doing in your courses, how, how how do you feel that's going so far? How would you assess your situation there? Yeah, well, only once I've needed to have a serious conversation about my assessment. My students were apparently having uh, grades that were too good for this course. But <laughs> um, I kind of said, do you want to start a fight? <laughs> because I can start a fight. <laughs> I have all the evidence here. I have the university assessment policy. I have this research over here. So do you want to fight? <laughs> and I very much want that, that one. Um, but Hong Kong is also an example of a very uh, individualistic context in a sense that uh, you, you do have a lot of autonomy as a teacher uh, in higher education, at least. So I'm joking a bit. And also, it's not a nefarious <laughs> context, it's, but it's certainly a context with a lot of uh, stress and anxiety and a lot of uh, tensions, which does uh, make me feel a bit nervous and, and it does make me uh, think about the uh, ethics of my own assessment because whatever I do in my classrooms really influences the students in ways that would not be true in, say, Scandinavia. So I'm trying to make sure that whatever I do, I trap a lot of evidence of student learning and I really make good use of the evidence. And I'm kind of trying to be creative within these contextual and cultural boundaries that I have in the context. So far, so good. And the student uh, feedback has, has always been very good. I think the students have also really appreciated when, that they have these almost like counter spaces where they can actually focus on something else than just uh, focusing on the grades. In my courses, I always force my students to take risks and I force them to fail. And that's something that uh, might not feel very nice at that moment. But when the students realize that that actually might not influence their grades because they are supposed to do risks, eventually, uh, at, at the end of all of my courses, luckily, the student feedback has been, has been positive. I'm thinking of, of the dichotomy of competition and cooperation. Um, and I don't know enough about either Hong Kong or Finland. So I don't know if, if, for example, you could say, well, Hong Kong has a much more competitive structure because of the individualistic ethos than the Finland uh, context, which may emphasize more cooperation or not. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. But in both instances, it seems that the notion of caring, whether you're caring to make sure that it cultivates more cooperation than competition or creating a caring culture that tames 
competition stuff so that it doesn't become like the wild west no rules at all let's let's kill everybody and i get ahead of everybody through those means i mean it, it sounds to me that the issue of caring is a big issue um and I, i've been wondering about something you you've written recently about the need to do research to find out what different educational actors uh, students teachers, you know, schoolmasters, people who are doing educational stuff to, that we need to investigate. There are different kinds of caring, including the way they care about assessment and the way they care about mathematics and the way they care about each other in terms of personal relations. Could you explain about a, a little bit about the significance of that kind of research uh, as you, you envision that type of examination of, of people's preferences for caring, uh, even if it's preferences for caring that are recalcitrant, that are, you know, we, I, I prefer to have grading as the biggest thing in my life. I prefer to be chained to that because, you know, I, I'm lost if I don't have the grading processes or how, how do you envision that kind of research occurring or taking place in, in different contexts? And what do you have in mind there? I think future research could unpack what and who is cared for in assessment in, in mathematics and beyond and by whom. I do think there's a lot of our potential in unpacking how different educational agents care about assessment because they care about the society around assessment. Assessment is always a part of the prevailing society. Uh, the stakes are higher than, I mean, for example, teaching and learning more generally. You can change some parts of your teaching, but if you change something about assessment, you really change something about the whole stakes of, of education. And in that sense, some of the actions that are the so-called uh, more progressive approaches to assessment, they might um, overlook the ways of care that are actually present in many assessment practices. For example, we, <laughs> we and I, I definitely uh, sometimes um, portray testing or these uh, very rigorous psychometric testing systems as something uh, that should be criticized. <laughs> Even in this uh, chat that we've had, I think I have a ten tendency to do that. But in fact, I think those systems can also be seen as a form of care. They are meant to challenge nepotism in, in our societies, for example. I think about some of the students in my classrooms who might come from working class backgrounds whose only way of climbing the ladders in this extremely highly competitive society of Hong Kong is to get high grades only with their abilities, not with the money and networks that these students might lack. So in that sense, uh, sometimes care might take forms that we as researchers do not always think about. For example, simply prepping a student for a test might in fact be a form of care or an act of care. But is it a care towards the assessment system, towards the student, or for the student, or for the society? What are we caring about when we assess? And that, that to me, is a very interesting question. And I can't provide any answers or solutions here, more just open, open questions. I don't know what you think. But this is very interesting because here in the United States, a lot of the discussion about equity and assessment is is linked to the fact that um and probably this goes to Bourdieu's ideas on cultural capital for example that the culture of high stakes assessment is a middle class culture 
for white people and for people who are not foreigners in terms of, of language differences. So anytime you have somebody who deviates from that norm, uh, working class folks, racialized groups, people uh, of different languages, people with disabilities, the gender non-conforming, et cetera, th those people tend to be the ones left out of the assessment piece. So when you say, and I think you're right, the intent with those um, psychometric validity tests and those kinds of things to, to have objective measurements that you can compare across the globe the purpose is to eliminate nepotism, to foment, uh, to foster this this uh, idea of meritocracy, right? But at the same time, it's the way it operates here in the United States. It's marginalizing the, the same folks who are already marginalized. And maybe it's working better in places like Hong Kong than in, in some of the global north contexts. Uh, and I know you're also starting to do some stuff in Canada. So you may have a, a picture about what's really going on with those things. Um, how, how do you see the balancing of those um, these curses, which seem to be in contradiction to one another in terms of high-tech testing is doing in terms of the caring as a purpose, as a kind of embedded ideal, and the actual practice of marginalization, exacerbating things that are already part of the inequities of education Oof, some massive <laughs> themes here <laughs> oh, oh my goodness let us start from well first of all i do have to say that hong kong has such a massive uh shadow education system the <laughs> billions of dollars families spend for extracurriculum activities here i think the start when kids are like two years old and they are already advertised to do some kind of consulting services and it's it's a uh, ideal of meritocracy and in assessment in hong kong is really a bit of a joke from that perspective <laughs> um, but um maybe my two cents here is that within these tensions in terms of how and why assessment is conducted how it is conducted at a more systemic high stakes level and how it is conducted in classrooms there are so many different discourses there are so many different forms and ways of caring and caring about many different things students assessments teachers uh, parents to society that we simply need to have a rather systemic and comprehensive understanding of what what goes on and i would say that this approach necessarily needs to understand the complexity of all of this rather than try to aim for simplistic solutions or easy targets but that's of course easier to say <laughs> out loud than to do in practice. Yes, we have some work to do over the next couple of decades, I think. I feel like I mean the, the question, yes, is in, is very complex indeed. And I I think that what you shared earlier about what you do in your class with dialogue, I think is is important. It, it is, I feel like, a care that you're having this dialogue. You're not doing something like a quick fix. You're starting this conversation with students who may not be sort of understanding of these systemic forces that exist. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think when Alexis was sharing the question, I, I was kind of reminded of uh, Danny Martin's assertion. So Danny Martin is a math educator, big math educator here in the U.S. who talks about like, okay, 
So we do all the care. Let's say we do the equity thing in schools. Uh, and then students get out of higher education. They get out of high school. And, and then what? And they step into a society that's inequitable already. And, and, and so what does that mean for our role, let's say, as higher education faculty, for our role as K-12 educators in knowing this? So I, I feel like what you shared about dialogue, as, as I kind of reflect on our conversation today, really is one of many steps, yes, that, that we have to have. Like the, We have to have these really authentic conversations about what is assessment, what's the role of assessments. Uh, what, what does that mean, right, outside of this context? What does it mean? I think you so you shared the example of, of how the currency and the ethics, right? If, if I don't prepare this working class student to pass this exam, then how have I failed the student? Because then they won't have those opportunities as, as others. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of reflect some of this these ideas that just came to me as as you were both sharing. Yeah, thanks. Quite interestingly, what I can see happening in both Finland and Hong Kong is that talking about assessment in higher education, actually, we sometimes portray the situation exactly as you did, that when students exit education, then they enter a very nefarious world where they need to be aware of bad things but it might actually be the other way around because I've seen some uh, in the STEM fields in particular, in medical fields, it might actually be the industry who is uh, not that interested in exam machines and <laughs> these trade chunkies. Uh, these industries might actually be the uh, ones who are trying to start some kind of a change because they want uh, employees who can actually do the job and who can actually have all these complex skills that people need in our current societies. So it's a weird tension. Sometimes we critical educators talk <laughs> quite critically about uh, industry in relation to education, but it might actually be the other way around. That's an interesting point you're making um, because we, we, you know, everybody criticizes the corporatization of universities, but in some ways, if they are going to be the employers of these people, uh, especially talking about STEM and health sciences, which are the biggest employers, the ones that pay more money, if you do research in terms of what they care for, because we, we don't have that picture when we're talking about caring and assessment, right? How, how would you do that sort of research? How, how would you triangulate the conversation so that universities are still autonomous, university professors and all the components of the university can be kept autonomous, but at the same time, they're able to learn to listen to those dynamics outside of the university that are probably going to be more concerned with certain competencies that we're not even thinking about as we're educating our students. How, how would you do the research of just, just finding out how these conversations could happen, maybe setting up some experimental pilot dialogues and capturing those. What what sort of things would you do to investigate the potential for that sort of transformational process? Well, I guess it would need to start from a very critical self-reflexive stance from academy or higher education itself. We've been talking about trade chunkies, and that might leave the impression that at least I, I was talking about students as trade chunkies and teachers as people who want to uphold this kind of a system. Uh, but look at us academics. We are the worst trade chunkies there are in the world. 
this week I've it's already it's Tuesday evening for me and I've already needed to look for my age index and um, some other metrics for two different applications like we are the great chunkies <laughs> we need to do something about uh this massive uh issue with academic capitalism and how that influences everything every single do thing we do in academia and how we take part in discourses and conversations about grading and how actually even when we're doing critical work on that we need to do that within the scope of measurement i mean i I've written critical pieces about assessment and I benefit from those because they count towards my age index and citations or whatever. So yeah, I, I do think that we at least need to stop valorizing academy as some kind of a place that has the right to criticize students and teachers for these things while actually very much taking part in the very same discourses of competition and measurement. Briefly, you so you mentioned you mentioned age index and and so just for folks with engaging the podcast what what is the h index oh that is one of the magical academic <laughs> indices that we use to measure our worth h index uh, is a way of quantifying your academic citations so every time you publish some something someone else might cite that and every time they do you get a point so to say so you get a citation uh, and now there needs to be a way of quantifying how productive you've been how many publications you've published that are actually noted in earlier research. So age indices is a way of quantifying how many uh, well-noted uh, studies you have actually published. If you have an age index of 15, that means that you have published 15 articles that have 15 citations. Yeah, thank you for that, Yuso. And as you mentioned, at the time of the recording, it's approaching midnight there in Hong Kong. Yuso is very much thinking about his H index and 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 thinking and and, and, and then, the assessment that, of <laughs> that also speaks of Juso's brilliance. I mean, if uh, you talk to me at midnight, maybe I I forget my name and I I'm not even able to articulate anything. So I mean, that gives you an idea of um, you know what what we would do if we interview uh, you know have this recording at a different time when. When Juso is is having more of of the actual coffee and the freshness of of starting his day and that kind of thing, so it's it's really a privilege, uh, Juso, to have been learning with you these years as part of our new frontiers uh, research uh, group that we have been cultivating with Annette and Juso and some other folks who have been participating with us. So I've grown a lot in learning about assessment just just by dialoguing with you. And of course, this podcast is not an exception. So thank you so much for that. Indeed, you. So thank you. It's It's been such an honor uh, and privilege to have you join this podcast as a guest uh, and, and share your stories and insights about assessments and care. So if you would like to let folks know who are engaging in this podcast, where they could find more. I mean, you, you share a lot of really awesome uh, publications. And, and and besides being an H-index, I mean, I think they're valuable in, in many ways for folks to learn more about. So wh where, where can they find your work? Where they can they connect with you? Uh, do you want to share that uh, with our podcast group? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. And I've learned a lot, which I always do when I have a chat with you, YouTube. And yeah, if you think I was smart during this conversation, imagine how smart I am during the daytime in my own first language. 
Just kidding. Um, you can find me at yosuneminen.com, which is my own website. Doesn't really have a lot of content, mostly my contact details, uh, like my email if you want to stay in contact. And I am quite active on Twitter or X or whatever the name of it. I refuse to call it X. Let's just call it Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so um, at yosuneminen. That's how you'll find me. All right. Thank you so much, Yuso. And it is, again, very late there in Hong Kong. So we will end this podcast and we'll be uh, uh, following up with you shortly. Thank you so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.